Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Hidden Animals. This is a podcast in which I will read some short stories that I've written and discuss them a little bit and just see where it goes from there. Uh, a few years ago, I started writing short stories, and I, I found that I really enjoyed it, so I, I wrote a couple of collections and published them, well, self-published them. I know short stories are not the most lucrative genre for a writer, uh, unless you're somebody like Stephen King, nobody's going out and buying short stories, but I didn't really do it for the money, and I, I just enjoy writing them anyway. Um, but I thought I would take those and, and do something a little different with them. Uh, I like to listen to podcasts and audiobooks and things like that, and so I thought I'd kind of just give it a shot and uh, see what happens. Uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here on preamble, but uh, just a couple of notes before we get into the first story here. Um, first, the title of the podcast, Hidden Animals. I have to give all the credit to my lovely, amazing, wonderful, brilliant wife for suggesting it. Um, the title comes from a line from Truman Capote's nonfiction novel, In Cold Blood, which is a somewhat fictionalized account of the real-life murder of a family, uh, the Clutter family, in the 1950s in Kansas. It was a, just a horrible, brutal murder. You know, mom and dad and, and their two teenage children were asleep in their beds, and, and these two degenerates come in and tie them up and murder them one by one. The investigator responsible for, you know, hunting down and bringing these two killers to justice, he was a special agent with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation uh, named Alvin Dewey, and he reportedly spent hours and hours and hours just poring over the, the crime scene photos, he just these gruesome pictures of the murder scene. And when asked about it, uh, he explained that he was, quote, hoping that he might suddenly see something, that a meaningful detail would declare itself, like those puzzles. The ones that ask, how many animals can you find in this picture? In a way, that's what I'm trying to do. Find the hidden animals. I feel like they must be there, if only I could see them. End quote. So his approach was to, to dig through and, and look over these photos uh, again and again for long periods of time, hoping that some detail would just jump out at him and he would be able to solve the case. Uh, and the reason I chose this for the title of the podcast uh, is because I feel like that's kind of what I'm trying to do when I write, especially when I'm writing these short stories. I'm trying to find the hidden animals, so to speak, in, in human nature, you know, writing about people in certain situations and the choices they make and trying to figure out for myself what's underneath, you know, what, what kind of people are we? Why do we do the things that we do? My plan for the podcast is to read through these uh, two collections that I've written so far. Uh, you know, each episode will feature a story and I'll spend a few minutes at the end discussing the story a little bit and maybe talking about the process of writing it or the origins of where it came from and things like that. I'm going to start with the first collection. It's called Ripples. There are seven stories about a variety of people in different situations, and the stories all have uh, an underlying theme of, of actions and consequences or cause and effect. The characters in these stories are put into these situations in which they have to make some very difficult decisions, and it's up to the reader to decide why they do the things they do or why they're important. Uh, and just a word of warning up front, these are not super happy stories. If you're the type of person who likes a very happy, feel-good read, uh, these stories may not be for you. Uh, some of these stories include references to or descriptions of things like emotional abuse, family dysfunction, racism, suicide, some of the less pleasant aspects of life that people have to deal with. Um, well, so without further ado, this is the first story in the collection Ripples. This is called Secret. <laughs> The two lunch waitresses at Vicky's Diner hung their aprons on the hooks just inside the kitchen, then crossed the dining room toward the door with their modest tips shoved into their jeans' pockets. Have a nice weekend, ladies. See y'all on Monday. 
Vicky called as she wiped lunch rush debris from the tables. Bye-bye, they chimed in unison. The bell over the door clinked behind them, and the dining room fell silent. Save for the swishing of the industrial dishwasher in the back, the place was devoid of sound. This meant the radio, an old AM-FM boombox on a shelf above the cash register, had once again powered down of its own accord. Vicky sighed and dragged a black metal chair around the counter. Climbing atop the thick, vinyl-covered seat, she could just reach the cord protruding from behind the radio. She pulled it from the socket, then strained to reinsert it, a move that required she stand on the tips of her toes and produced a sharp ache in her thick calves. Though she was well into her fifties, Vicky had mostly avoided the middle-aged softness that usually accompanied a long, easy marriage and a couple of children. Still, her body had lately begun protesting all the hard work she demanded of it. As the last few notes of Nearer My God to Thee again crackled through the speakers from a local Christian gospel station, she heard the bell above the front door ring. She stepped with a soft thud back to the floor, and without turning around, said, Forget something? Assuming that Tracy had once again left behind her purse or her key ring. Are you open? replied a man's voice. She turned around then, startled only slightly, and said, Sure, come on in. Just have a seat if you can find a clean spot. He glanced at the table beside him underneath the large plate glass window facing the square and, seeing that it was bare of any dishes, sat down quietly. From where Vicky stood, he appeared to be in his mid-forties and more than a little handsome. He wore a striped golf shirt tucked carefully into neatly pressed khaki shorts. The vivid blue and white stripes on his shirt were so narrow and the contrast between the two colors so high that it seemed to shimmer as he moved. The loafers he wore also shone brightly. She had never seen this man before, but Vicky felt she could guess a great deal about him. Probably he wore an expensive suit and drove a Lexus to his job as a lawyer or accountant. Even the faintly graying hair around his temples suggested a prestigious career, a gorgeous wife, and one or two accomplished teenage children. He thumbed the plastic menu open, but seemed almost not to be reading it. Vicky walked over to the table with a damp white dish towel and scooped a few crumbs from the tabletop onto the floor. What can I get you to drink, sweetie? Vicky asked. As a woman raised in the warm, red-dirt heart of Georgia, and well into that matronly age beyond raising children, she freely exercised her natural right to call anyone and everyone by pet names. Most people, unless they had fallen out of her favor, were sugar or honey, or some variation thereof. Sweet iced tea, he replied without looking up. Please. The last word slipped out automatically a reflex dulled somewhat by time, but still keen. Sure thing. You need a minute? She stuck her fists on her hips, one still clutching the damp towel. Yes, he said in the same flat tone. Most people who came into the place alone in the off hours were generally quiet, but this man's subdued demeanor was noticeably artificial. He didn't seem interested in conversation, nor did he give any sign that he wanted to be left alone as most solitary patrons did when they had some work to do or a book to read. Okay, I'll be right back with your tea. You need lemon? He did not answer her this time, so she turned and trudged back to the kitchen without any further interrogation. 
On the radio, Leanne Rimes twanged Amazing Grace. She wasn't as good as Judy Collins, but the song nonetheless elicited a deep, soulful hum from Vicky's throat as she crossed the small dining room. In the back, she filled a translucent red cup with ice cubes and sweet tea, then scooped a couple of lemon slices onto a saucer, just in case. Still humming, she came back to the table and found the man sitting with the menu closed in front of him, his head turned slightly to stare out the window facing the street. He seemed to be looking at the car parked in front of the cafe, a brilliant black Volvo. Not even close, Vicky thought. All set? she asked as she set down his drink and a paper-wrapped straw. He was silent for a moment. Then he turned his head and, for the first time, actually looked at the woman who had been speaking to him. She saw that he had blue-gray eyes, a remarkable color so icy and deep that the hairs on her neck and arms prickled. It wasn't the way he looked at her. There was no malice or threat at all. It was the impossible concrete color of his eyes, coupled with the long, straight nose and daring cheekbones, which produced the unsettling effect that he could see straight through her. In the long train of people she'd seen in her lifetime, she had never been so startled merely by someone's appearance. I'll have the grilled chicken sandwich, please. Hold the tomato. His voice still conveyed no feeling, no hint of displeasure or satisfaction. It was as if it had been iron flat. She could see now that his face was as impeccably maintained as his physique and clothing. There was not a spot of razor burn on his shortened cheeks, nor a single stray eyebrow. It occurred to her that he may actually be military. No man was that meticulous about his appearance unless he wore a uniform. Still, despite the crisp countenance, something like fatigue pooled darkly underneath his eyes. Right, Vicky said. I'll get that going for you. She was aware of an uneasy sensation spreading inside her abdomen. It started in the guts below her stomach and climbed upward toward the vitals underneath her ribcage. She was still not afraid of him. But something about him was simply off, like when the soundtrack in a movie is a fraction of a second behind the picture. She stuck her head through the kitchen door and called out the order to Gabe, the cook, also the busboy, dishwasher, and handyman. He looked up from the pile of silverware he'd been sorting and rolling up into individual napkins. Yes, ma'am, coming right up. Vicky grabbed one of the silverware bundles and was about to leave the kitchen as the raw chicken breast hit the flat-top grill with a hiss. Stopping just behind the swinging door, she watched through the plexiglass porthole as the man pulled something from his pocket and held it in his fingertips. It was small and oblong, about the size and shape of a pecan. He slowly turned it over and over with his fingers as if inspecting it. He set it down on the table and swiped one end of it with the tip of his finger and watched it spin. From where she stood, she could see the dark object spinning in tight circles. Each time it slowed, he tapped it again. It seemed to mesmerize him. She left the sounds of sizzling chicken and whistling Gabe in the kitchen, crossed the tiled dining room floor, and placed the silverware down on the table in front of her singular guest. The spinning object she now saw was a rock, black, shiny, and smooth. He stopped it with the tip of his forefinger, now she could see some fine streaks of white slicing lengthwise through it, almost like lightning bolts against a coal-black sky. He said nothing. Get you something while you wait? Pack of crackers? No, thank you, he answered. So, are you just passing through? I haven't seen you in here before. 
She wasn't always so invasive, but she couldn't quite still her curiosity. Yes, he replied. Headed home. He absently traced a line through the condensation forming on the outside of his cup. She considered asking where home was, but she checked herself. All right, I'll leave you be. Sandwich will be out in a minute. Holler if you need me. She resumed her chore of bussing the tables, piling dirty plates and silver into a gray tub and lugging each load to the back for Gabe to rinse, rack, and run through the dishwasher. She wiped down tables, refilled salt shakers, swept up crumbs and balled up napkins, straightened chairs. All the while, she stole repeated glances at the lone diner seated by the front window. He never spoke. He never looked at her. He never made any noise at all. Occasionally, he'd spin the rock and watch as it slowly came to rest again. His silence wasn't merely an absence of sound. It was palpable, present in a way that she found simultaneously troubling and familiar. He moved stiffly, as if under a tremendous weight. Grief? she wondered. When her father died five years before, she remembered feeling as though someone had torn a hole in her, revealing a gaping darkness that grew bigger and bigger until she could no longer see anything else. Not even the customary wagon train of mourning casseroles from her neighbors and church friends could pry through that opaque cloud. Now, looking at the beleaguered gentleman sitting at table six, Vicky thought she could see his suffering as clearly as she had felt her own. When Gabe yodeled the order up signal, she delivered the grilled chicken sandwich, sans tomato, to her patient customer. The clonk of the plate against the table freed him from his reverie, or whatever it was that had silenced him for so long. Thank you. He said it almost to the sandwich instead of Vicky. He made no move to pick it up at first. Everything look all right? Vicky asked. Yes, thanks. She took his continued silence as a tacit request to leave and returned to the business of prepping for the dinner shift. As she resumed the work, she furtively watched the man eat a couple of bites of the sandwich. At first, he chewed slowly and deliberately, tentatively even, perhaps a matter of shyness because he could feel her watching him. Soon, though, he ate as if he were starving. The sandwich disappeared first, and then the french fries. He scraped up piles of ketchup with each one, and despite the sudden haste with which he finished his meal, he never dropped a single crumb. Vicky had just reached the table adjacent to his, and was in the middle of loading a handful of napkins into the dispenser when she saw him slide his plate a couple of inches away from him. He wiped his mouth and dropped the napkin on the plate, then laid the fork and spoon on top. As she finished arranging the condiments and sugar caddy, she asked, how was it? Very good, thank you. He paused. Then, almost to himself, he said, I didn't realize how hungry I was. Would you like some dessert? There's fresh coffee brewing, and I make a mean buttermilk pie, she offered with only a trace of brag. He declined politely. Vicky's curiosity finally overwhelmed her manners. Sugar, do you mind if I... She paused. I'm not usually one to pry, but, well, are you okay? He manufactured a brief smile and stared at her. Oh, I'm fine, he replied. He turned his gaze again to the outside, to something that lingered very close to him but was invisible to her. As his silence echoed around her, the urge to apologize flooded her chest. Look, I'm... 
Her voice trailed away, leaving the sorry hanging inaudibly in the air between them. He stared at her with those shattering blue eyes for a moment. You know, maybe a slice of pie and some coffee would be good. Coming right up, she said as she scooped up his plate and scooted back to the kitchen. A few minutes later, the pie was gone, and all that remained was a gooey smear on the plate. She offered him another, but he asked instead for the check. She pulled a small pad from the pocket of her apron and tore off the top sheet. As he reached for his wallet, Vicky could see the strain in his movements. Whatever ghost of a smile she might have witnessed was gone, melted into the flat line of melancholy again. The wallet he retrieved from his pocket bore no resemblance to the obsessively sharp appearance that characterized nearly every other aspect of his person. It was a thin bifold, worn to the bare seams along every edge. Scratches of various length and severity crisscrossed the tea-colored leather. Have you ever... he began. Vicky waited a few seconds for him to finish the question, then, sensing that it was not coming on its own, slowly pulled out the chair across from him and slid into it. She leaned forward with her arms crossed on the table. The man buried his eyes in hers and seemed to be considering his next words very carefully. Have you ever made a choice that, as soon as you made it, you wish you could take it back? But you can't, and it ends up destroying everything around you, like kicking a rock down a hill and watching it bounce against the other rocks until it's basically a landslide that you can't control. He punctuated the question by picking up the glossy black stone and rolling it between his thumb and forefinger. Well, yes. I've made some mistakes before. I mean, everyone has. We... I'm not talking about a mistake. A mistake is a careless accident, something you do without realizing it. No, I mean doing something that you know from the start is wrong, but you do it anyway. You do it because you don't care about the consequences. You do it because, deep down, it's what you really want. When he stopped, she looked at him, searching carefully the lines that creased beside his eyes and across his forehead and around his mouth. No, I can't say that I've ever been there, she acknowledged. He looked suddenly ashamed. The sun ducked behind a cloud outside, and the glare from the windshield of his car winked out of sight. Though he seemed harmless enough, Vicky knew the depths of cruelty that some people are capable of reaching. Her mind began flashing through possibilities of this man's secret crime. Before reaching some arbitrary verdict, however, she instead tapped the wellspring of matronly wisdom in which she'd baptized so many other lonely, wounded diners. I don't know what it is you've done, but I know this. Guilt is a man-made ball and chain. You may want to hold on to it because it makes you feel better like it's the punishment you deserve, but you have to let go of it. He nodded vaguely. He was still holding the stone, rubbing a flattened portion of one side of it with his thumb. She wondered if he had eroded it for years in this manner, unconsciously thumbing it while avoiding some secret that lurked in the dark corners of his memory. Tell me, she said. Tell me about this choice you've made. Maybe it's not as bad as you think. I don't know he began. Instead of continuing, though, he repeated, I don't know. I tell you what. She reached over and grabbed the ticket she had set in front of him. She balled it up and tossed it into the bus tub sitting on the table next to them. Your lunch is on me today. The sun climbed out from behind the clouds and again brightened the room. Though it may not seem like much, 
Food is how we Southerners heal. You didn't know it, but there was salvation in that chicken sandwich. She thought he might object to her charity, or whatever it was, but he just smiled faintly and said, Thank you. He turned his gaze outward once more. He still had an air of melancholy, but his expression now conveyed a sense of gratitude. Can I get you anything else? He did not answer that question. When he finally did speak, the words came out thick and heavy. The story he told was indeed tragic, but by the end of it she realized that her earlier guess had been only partially right. There was more than grief in the enormous weight under which his body and soul were stooping. There was shame. He leaned forward and laid the stone on the table with a mild clatter. I'm sorry, honey. She reached over and rested her hand on top of his. I don't know what else to say after a story like that. I'm so sorry. They sat and looked at each other in the ensuing stillness for a minute or two as the radio proffered the opening bars of the Gatlin brothers' rendition of It Is Well. He sat back in his chair and folded his hands in his lap. His head was bowed a little, but she noticed that his back was straighter, his shoulders a little higher. Wait here, she said. I've got something that may lighten that load a little more. Give me two shakes. Before he could respond, she slipped out of the chair and carried the gray tub to the back so Gabe could finish up the lunch dishes. In the walk-in cooler, she grabbed one of the apple pies she'd baked that morning and slid it into a white box for him to take along. When she swung back through the kitchen door, the dining room was empty. He was gone. She couldn't help but feel a little deflated that the man would leave without accepting her gift or at least saying goodbye. The clock on the wall read 3.30, which meant the dinner crew would be arriving soon. Friday afternoons always had an early crowd. She set the apple pie on the counter and went to clean up table six. Reaching for his dessert plate and coffee mug, she was taken aback to see a $100 bill on the table. On top, pinning down the gracious tip, was the glassy black stone. She picked it up and realized it was much heavier than she expected. A sudden mix of sorrow and thankfulness rippled through her, and she looked out the window. The Volvo was still there. She waved at him and thrust her palm forward in a stop sign gesture, hoping to catch him before he left so she could thank him for his generosity. At first, Vicky could not see him through the windshield for the dazzling glare of sunlight bouncing off the glass, but it vanished again as a cloud swept in front of the sun. She waved again and started to take a step toward the door, but she stopped abruptly as she saw him staring through the window at her. If his demeanor had previously unsettled her, it now incapacitated her. He was smiling, a bewildering expression of relief and exhaustion and surrender. Watching at first with confusion, then with disbelief, then with horror, Vicky saw the man open his mouth and insert the gleaming barrel of a revolver between his teeth. She tried to scream, but the only noise she could manage to produce was a shallow, gurgling cough. A single tear bubbled over his eyelid and slid down the side of his nose, stopping just above his lip. He heaved a shuddering breath and pulled the trigger. For a split second, his cheek swelled outward in a grotesque parody of a trumpet player, but the instrument at his lips was no brass horn, and he no Miles Davis. Some part of her expected his head to explode from the violent concussion of the bullet exiting the barrel of the pistol. She thought there should be blood and brains splattered in all directions around his open skull. 
Instead, there was only the brief puff of air inside his mouth and a slight upward jerk that knocked him back into an impossibly upright position with his head, still intact, leaning against the headrest for a moment. The hand with the gun dropped from sight and a wisp of smoke trailed from his mouth. As the smoke slid upward, vanishing as it went, two thin crimson streams slid down his chin from each corner of his lips and a bloody cataract poured from his nose. The scream that had lodged in her throat finally forced its way out, causing Gabe to burst through the kitchen door and into the dining room. He ran to her side and asked what was wrong. She did not answer. He tried to follow her gaze to the source of the terror that had seized her, but the sunlight had resumed its blinding reflection off the windshield and rendered the recently deceased gentleman invisible. He slid a chair over behind her and gently guided her to sit. The cracked vinyl hissed under the weight of her body. She never took her blistered eyes from the window. What happened? What's wrong? He's... I didn't... He... He what? Who is it? Gabe's repeated questions produced no intelligible answers, only choked fragments and sputtered sobs. After a moment, her clenched fist opened to reveal a small black stone pressed into her palm. She turned it over in her fingers, rolling it back and forth until her thumb found an indentation on one side of it. It was almost like the groove had been made specifically for her. Thinking it may hold some answers, Gabe reached his hand out to take the stone from her. It disappeared into her fist again, and she turned to look at him. Her usually beaming eyes were cloudy, heavy. Outside in the car, the man's body had slumped sideways against the door, free from the constraints of will and muscle that had for so long kept him upright. Gabe and Vicky stared at each other, one in utter bafflement, the other in wretched pain. Neither noticed that the radio had once again fallen silent. One of the reasons I started writing these stories to begin with, uh, especially this this first collection, Ripples, um, is because I wanted to use them as a teaching tool in my classroom so that I could, you know, teach my students about the nature of fiction and, and writing stories and how authors, you know, make some very intentional choices. Uh, as an English teacher, I've heard students over the years complain that they they basically think that we're just making up these uh, explanations of stories and, oh, the curtains are blue because of this or that. And that's not always the case. I mean, maybe sometimes some people overanalyze things or, or you know, try to dig too deep to find meaning that's not there. But this is one of the things that I try to impress on my students, kind of a mantra that I repeat over and over again in my classroom, is that authors do stuff on purpose. And that's hard to sell to teenagers who are kind of skeptical about things anyway, and a lot of them don't want to read in the first place. But it's important for them to understand that the stuff that we read and talk about was written by people who sat down and spent a tremendous amount of energy creating these stories and developing these characters and working through sometimes a very grueling editing process. So a lot of the stuff that's in the final version of a text is, it's very intentional. But it's hard to prove that to them because, you know, know, if you want to ask Edgar Allan Poe, like, oh, why'd you write this story? He can't really tell us anything because he's dead. So I wanted to write these stories so that my students could ask the author, you know, did you mean this? Why did you write this? Is this color significant? Um, And I thought that would be a good way to, to show them that 
there really are these very specific choices that are made that affect the way that stories are written. And as part of that, writing for high school students, I was very careful uh, to avoid things like you know, profanity and any sexual content, because uh, I wanted to be able to use these in my classroom pretty freely. But I didn't want to shy away from, you know, some darker themes or even strong vocabulary or uh, some complex story structures and stuff. Uh, and so actually the stories in this collection all have some sort of unique feature in the way that they're written so that I could show them, you know, a bunch of different examples. So the ending of this first story, Secret, is obviously very shocking and unpleasant. You know something is wrong from the beginning. There's some a little bit of foreshadowing in there. The tension in the story develops very slowly, and I, I describe it as like a slow burn. It, it kind of seems like nothing is happening for a while. Uh, and then at the very end, there's this really shocking, traumatic moment. And to be honest, I don't know where this came from. I, I don't know why I had this idea, um, but I just had this image of a man going into a diner, having a nice meal, very casually talking to the waitress or the turned out to be the owner of the place, and then paying his bill and going to the car and shooting himself in the parking lot. It's a very morbid premise to write about, but and like I said, I'm not really sure where it came from. But as I started writing the story and getting into the the plot and everything, I realized that there had to be a reason for him to do what he does. And that's kind of why I wrote the story was to figure out for myself what was going on. Very early on, I didn't actually have any reason for him to do this. I, I did not know what the secret was um, because it's not really about the secret. His particular crime is not that important in this in this story because this story is really just about the nature of keeping a secret like this, the corrosive effect of trying to carry this weight by yourself for so long. But I was as I was developing the story, I tried a few different things in, a, in an early version. Uh, he had this black canvas bag with him in the diner and he leaves it for Vicky at the end. And in one version, uh, it's revealed that the bag is full of cash, um, but that's never explained. Uh, and then in another version, she finds the bag, but it's not revealed what's in it at the end of the story. And I just didn't feel, I didn't really feel right about either one of those. I, I didn't know exactly why he would have this bag, why he would have all this money. It just didn't, it just didn't feel right. The stone that he carries is actually borrowed or well, stolen from a Dave Matthews song called The Stone. Uh, in the song, the speaker talks about carrying this weight, this guilt, this stone around for something that he's done. And in the song, it's never revealed what he's done. It's just the song is about guilt. And so I thought that was a, a very nice, simple, but potentially rich symbol that I could use so that's why the guy carries the stone, and that's why he's playing with it throughout the story and spinning it around and things like that. Because uh, the stone is a very clear symbol of his grief and his guilt for whatever he's done. Um, and by the time I finished the story, I still didn't know what his secret was. And later, I just had to know for myself. So I, I went back and I wrote another story that does explain um, what he's done. But I'll save that for another time, maybe. Um, there's a few other things about the story that uh, are very intentional. There are things that I specifically put in there as elements that would add some kind of value as far as the setting is concerned and things that sort of provide a backdrop for the events of the story. 
because it takes place in this little diner in a small town somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Georgia, it kind of made sense that there would be uh, some potential religious imagery, which is built into their conversation a little bit. You know, she tells him that there's salvation in the chicken sandwich, um, which is for her just kind of a, a, a she's trying to make the guy feel better. But it, it does kind of reflect a deeper sense of going into this diner and eating a meal is sort of like communion. And then telling her the secret that he has is basically his act of confession. And the songs that are playing on the radio throughout the story also, you know, kind of help with that religious imagery. Uh, and, you know, the the song titles are, are chosen very specifically. I looked through a lot of different songs and the ones I picked are significant and the order in which they're mentioned throughout the story are also significant. But I'm not going to explain everything. I'll let you figure that one out. One thing I want to establish about the podcast up front is that my plan is to keep it ad free for as long as the podcast exists. I understand why other podcasters use these advertisements. It's an obvious source of of revenue. I just, it's not really for me. uh, And I do think it would be detrimental to the stories if they're interrupted every few minutes by ads or whatever. On the other hand, there are some costs associated with this. So if you'd like to donate to the show, um, or even if you just want to leave comments or questions, uh, you can do that at hiddenanimalspodcast.com. If I did everything correctly, you should be able to link to that website from the show notes. There should also be an email address there where you can send messages directly. Um, Other ways to support, you can share on social media. You can review the podcast on Spotify or Apple or whatever service you're using. Uh, If you want, you can go purchase the books on Amazon. There's a lot of different ways to support this, and uh, any of those things would be greatly appreciated. I really want to thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you will join me next time for the second story in the collection, which is called Hurt. Mm -hmm.